Ian, I think it's best if everyone just goes home before things get worse. Worse? How could they get any worse? Take a look around you, Hayden. We're at the threshold of hell. Hello, therapists, non-therapists, and everyone in between. My name is Ian Hammonds, and I am currently buzzing off of an obnoxious amount of caffeine. And this is Therapy on Tap. I am here having a drink with fellow Austin, Texas therapists, Patrick Harris and Hayden Lindsay. This is the most authentic way we know how to talk about therapy in a relaxed, non-judgmental environment. Alrighty, we have a very heavy topic today that we are going to go over, and that is therapy and men, or technically, therapy and men on tap. Fuck my life. This is a (laughs) very, very heavy topic. We've spent probably an hour, an hour and a half, almost two hours actually, just prepping for this episode, just because it is so emotionally charged you you know what you you know what the main problem with men is (laughs) they they find a need to add beer to everything what's wrong with that you have a you have a point there i stand corrected yeah or just yeah whatever (laughs) i don't know what's what's your take patrick on men in therapy (laughs) <laughs> what's what's coming up for you right now? Whew. So much. So much. I'm just kidding. I don't know. I find it a very fascinating topic. I'm very interested in diving in. I think this will be a really cool episode. I think so too. Well, before we dive in, um, let's get a quick check-in of everyone. As Hayden looks away from the microphone and belches... <laughs> He's been drinking beer. Okay. I'm, um, doing, I, I'm doing great, obviously. I'm, I'm glad. I'm doing great, too. How, um, how are you, Ian? Let, let's start with you, since you're you're the MC. Oh. I feel like everyone okay. forgets about the MC. The MC, yeah. It's like we're, we're, we're so fascinated by, by putting other people in front of the microphone, and yet we're, um, you know, we're vulnerable creatures as well. I'm doing okay, um, not great, but not terrible at the same time. But as Ellen Griswold just said, um, it's Christmas and we are all in misery. This episode is <laughs> it's probably going to come out um, in either January or February time, but we're recording smack dab in the middle of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, lots of family drama. I just have to say, um, you know, I'm engaged. I'm planning for a wedding, um, Halloween of next year and, it is a uh, very, very, very intense, I will say. But the things I think that are actually bringing me peace right now are margaritas. <laughs> it's my ASMR moment. Get into it. Um, margaritas and actually, and I say this in all uh, sincerity, recording this podcast. Because as I said earlier, this is always the highlight of my week. So Aww. how's everyone else doing? I'm I'm right there with you, and uh, this is a highlight of my week too. When I get to come together and hang out with a um, with you two fine gentlemen, and love you, Daddy. Uh, you know the fact that we're talking about men and men's mental health and men supporting men. Uh, I think it's just appropriate that we're we're here today. 
Um, I'm doing pretty good. I have a lot of grief and loss kind of swirling in my world, and, and y'all are kind of in my world, so mm-hmm. um, there's some uh, uh, overlap there. Uh, recently lost a good, um, I would say, a music mentor of mine, uh, Stuart Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh, played some open mics together and uh, had been looking up to him, and fabulous storyteller, so... Uh, just sitting with that this week, uh, as well as a few other, uh, few other people that um, some affected by COVID in my world, um, others uh, just from from other other things. So, uh, tis the season. I think. I think grief is always kind of hovering, but it seems to be amplified in the holidays. Sure is. So that's where I'm at. I'm glad you normalized grief because I will admit both professionally and personally, I struggle with like grief and loss. Like anything death related just freaks me out. Uh, my high school sweetheart uh, passed away earlier this week and it was just like a really confusing wow. time. Uh, it, it it ended fine. Like it didn't end on bad terms or anything, but it's like, I also hadn't spoken to her since college, but it was just a very like jarring news to get. Cause you, you know, passing of a loved one is always very sad, but I do find myself instantly like numbing out and then avoiding anything that kind of comes along with grief and loss because we're men <laughs> because <laughs> we're men and that's what men do we we take it and we put it in this just like this little ball we just stuff it right the fuck down yeah <laughs> and that's, that's the truth that's the topic therapy and men on tap i have to give a quick shout out it is my mom's birthday i'm sure we will have an episode on the mother wound Womb, <laughs> but but until then, uh, uh, happy birthday, mom! I love you. Happy birthday, Hayden's mom! Happy birthday! And uh, speaking, I don't know if this is the good, uh, the best time to talk about it, but someone very close to us, I will not mention her name, out of respect for her and her grief and loss, but a very close friend of mine, and she's very well known in the Austin therapist community. Recently lost her husband very, very suddenly. And if you are listening, you know who you are. And we are all thinking about you. We are all sending you positive thoughts, positive vibes. Um, And I'm just very, very, very sorry for your loss. Um, And also, I'm also sorry that you are having to go through this during a very, uh, during the holiday season. Um, Yeah, just very, very sad for her right now. But speaking of normalizing grief, she's been kicking ass and taking names as far as like sharing her experience. And it's been very inspiring to watch again as somebody that just like avoids that at all costs. It has been really cool to see really like the inner workings because she's been very like vulnerable and transparent every step of the way. And that's been really awesome. It has because I mean, like you said earlier, Patrick, like it's our natural instinct to clam up and shy away and not open up at all. I mean, honestly, with grief, it's it's men and women. I feel like it's just in, in mm-hmm. general, it's better to just mourn privately. And it's like, no, you need to remember that when you're going through a very, very difficult and traumatic loss that you are not alone. You're not isolated. And she ain't isolating herself. I'll tell you that much. I still need to bring over a, a thing of lasagna for her. Still haven't done that. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm working on the gumbo this yes. week. Yes. Well, that brings us into the first thing that we really wanted to talk deeply about today. And I feel like with confronting men and men who are in therapy or seeking therapy, 
Um, or avoiding therapy. Or avoiding therapy. <laughs> I, I feel like that uh, toxic masculinity just has to come up. I feel like it just, it's there. It's kind of staring us all in the face. And how can you talk about therapy and men and toxic masculinity not come up, which is why basically when I asked the both of you in our group message, what's what should we talk about when we're talking about men and therapy? And the first, I think the first thing that you said, Patrick, was toxic masculinity. So let's dive right in, shall we? What? what? Well, Ian, what what is toxic masculinity? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, it's a softball. <laughs> Um, so William Liu, who's a writer of time, refers to toxic masculinity as adherence to traditional male gender roles that consequently uh, stigmatize interesting word usage that he uses stigmatize and limits the emotions that boys and men may comfortably express while elevating other emotions such as anger. That's an, and that's part of our mission, isn't it? Isn't it to D. De- you don't say. Destigmatize. <laughs> yes, our, our our mission is to destigmatize, normalize, and humanize therapy. And you know, since we're on the subject of kind of talking about things like anger and other other such emotions that men are kind of encouraged to express, let's talk about um, to clarify to non therapists primary versus secondary emotions. So with the primary emotions, you have the primal innate things that um, our old brains feel. I don't want to go on a neuroscience tangent here. I'm such a fucking neuroscience nerd. It's ridiculous. But um, our innate primal emotions are sadness, loneliness, fear, shame, etc. And you also have joy and, and happiness there. But our secondary emotions, and these are very important, I think, for men to understand, is Secondary emotions are responses to our primary emotions. So for an example, I'm angry at myself for being depressed. So underneath, I am depressed, but I'm I'm beating myself up because I'm a man. I'm not allowed to be depressed or sad. But men are taught to show their secondary emotions, the secondary surface feelings like anger and happiness Jealousy, resentment, frustration, etc. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Where where does hanger fall? <laughs> hanger, hanger. I, got I like it. that. Makes me think of halt, like the hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Like, oh yeah. Are, yes. are you being fussy right now? What's going on? Let's halt and let's talk about yeah. it. It's like one. you're in a, a PhD program or something, <laughs> Patrick. It's crazy. That's why I owe the government the big bucks. Oh, me too. Me. <laughs> <laughs> um. I always talk about it in in reference to like a locus of control, like anger helps us control the emotions that we are not comfortable with experiencing. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I liken it to just like chest beating, you know, you're, you're beating your chest. That's not where strength comes from. That's not your authentic emotion. You're just doing that to cover up like the actual threat, which is what we consider the secondary emotions. Or, sorry, <laughs> what we consider the primary emotions by covering it up with the secondary emotions. Right. It's like I'm beating my chest to show the world that I'm this big, tough, strong man when in reality I'm this sad and lonely little boy inside. Because <laughs> it's a distraction. It's like a, hey, look at this, rather than actually addressing it head on. Right. 
I've got sort of a you know primary and secondary. I think are some some good ways of understanding emotions. I kind of have a club sandwich of of emotions. I, I explain, you know. Mister Hang- <laughs> Mister Hangry. I, I might have. Oh, I've never been to that club. Damn, I I made <laughs> myself is the, hungry. Is the one on Fifth Street or Sixth Street? <laughs> Club Sandwich. That would be Fourth a good, Street, good Patrick. Name. Fourth Street. <laughs> if this therapy thing doesn't work out, we should open up a deli. I think we should. Called but uh, I, I, you know, I went through a lot of my life, uh, not very emotionally intelligent, and uh, would kind of do this layering. So I would have a feeling, and then I would have a thought about that feeling. Like I'm sad, uh, but my thought is. I'm a guy, I really shouldn't be sad, or I at least shouldn't show that I'm sad because I might get my ass kicked. Uh, and then I would be sad about that thought, and, and then I would be angry about that feeling, and, and you kind of start building this, this uh, you were mentioning lasagna earlier, Ian, uh, this <laughs> seven-layer cake of, of emotions, and I think what uh, therapy is great for is kind of helping us peel back the layers. And we use this term introspection, kind of we throw it around. It's out there in the popular psych world. But I define introspection as figuring out how I feel about what I think and how I think about what I feel. And this helps me kind of get down to that, that, uh, the bottom of that club sandwich. The primary, very nice primary emotion. But I wonder how much of that is unconscious, because there's some psychologists and some researchers that'll estimate up to ninety five percent of the decisions that we make are motivated by our unconscious. They're not like conscious decisions. Right. So I wonder, like, at how how much is this toxic masculinity or this idea of masculinity so ingrained that it's an unconscious decision? And to me, that seems more problematic than making the conscious decision of oh, sadness is weakness so let me just get angry instead 100 percent. but yet it's more automatic that okay sadness automatically triggers anger right it's, it's not like, a conscious club no it's it's the <laughs> knee-jerk reaction club con really club conscious that could be the name of our our dance club and i mean the the things that were tied in our formative years as 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 men i mean if we're in you know our teenage years raise your hand if you had a dad that told you to suck it up and get over it uncle but yes or a male figure okay that i feel um (laughs) no we all raise our hands it's just this is a podcast and nobody could see this (laughs) that's true i raised i was gonna say everyone's raising their hand right now but yes we've all had that kind of overbearing masculine figure in our lives telling us to be a man suck it up don't cry oh you know what my stepdad did so yeah, this pic- is opening up a lot of memories for us <laughs> yeah. now. Go for it, Patrick. Just, just picture Hank Hill from King of the Hill, and boom, that's my stepdad. Only he was a police officer instead of propane salesman. But anyways, I was crying about something. I don't even remember what it was. It was probably, looking back on it, a legitimate reason. But uh, he made me stand on the edge of the driveway till I stopped crying so every passing car could oh see me crying. God. It's like, if, you, if you're going to cry, oh then God. you need oh to show God. the whole world that you're, you're a little boy that likes to cry. <laughs> and now, Whoa. looking back on it, it's that that is pretty fucked up. I'm resisting going into full on therapist mode right now. What was interesting about him is that he was the sweetest man, but that shows the extent of the problem with toxic masculinity is that it exists below the surface. It's not like intentional. Mm -hmm. Like no one, very few people are walking around the world saying, you know what? I'm going to be a dick today. Let me, let me do that. 
it, it's more subtle than that. It's people like him that are just repeating the patterns of history. It's that social reference theory that he learned it from his dad, who learned it from his dad, from learned it from his dad. Mm-hmm. So it's it's law. So that's what a man is. But yeah, that was very problematic. <laughs> you, you were Ian. You were snapping into therapy mode. I I was trying to figure out what King of the Hill character my father would be. It, it would definitely be Boomhauer. <laughs> kind of kind of a kind of a ladies' man. He always had a a, a speedo and a and a beer. And uh, sounds a lot like you. Well, okay, some things. Uh, uh, some things. Love are, you. That's a good segue. <laughs> a speedo in December is a bold choice, Hayden. <laughs> I appreciate you showing up in one. But. I'm wearing one. <laughs> I right mean, now. come on! I've seen you in a speedo before, Hayden. <laughs> my, my denim print speedo. <laughs> I think part of what we're talking about here is, is you know, Patrick, with you standing on the on the curb. Uh, this is the man box, and uh, one of the one of the concepts I really like to share in therapy. Uh, the man box is a term that came out of some research done in Oakland in the late 80s. Um, it's actually a short for uh, act like a man box. Um, I do like the, the, the elongated form because it, it shows how performative masculinity is. Um, but the, the, I define the man box as, as the social mechanism for uh, basically performing masculinity and correcting uh, non-masculine behavior, and we correct it through shame. And, and when we're talking about uh, all of this happening beneath the surface, I think shame is a big reason that so much of this stuff stays unconscious. Yep. I like the the recognition that it's performative. Like, it's all mm-hmm. on the exterior, because there's just, like, a storm of emotions going on in the interior. And it's even, I mean, to tie sex therapy into that as well, there's a lot of pressure on men in the bedroom to perform. Yeah, Carolyn. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we're clear, Carolyn is is Hayden's mate. Yeah, partner. It's, it's weird that our partners just want a puppet show every single night or like shadow puppet theater. Is, it, is that what we're talking about? Like, yeah. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> Performances. No, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I thought you were... I'm not going to kink shame. <laughs> Performing in the bedroom is what we're we're clarifying, really. But, yeah. I mean, that is that is a huge portion of, I think, what drives this. Yeah. And the, uh, I think the damning thing about... Can we curse on here? <laughs> Fuck yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> the damning thing about the, the man box is it, it makes masculinity this moving target and uh and, and actually the level of conformity that uh that we would need to be accepted in the man box fully is uh completely unattainable it's not possible to achieve and um i, I kind of think that's by design i think they're uh by by keeping the target moving uh this is how we uh concentrate power at the at the broader social level. I won't necessarily go into all of that, but uh, I, I do think the man box is an important concept for, uh, for men to understand. And at least the men that I work with resonate it, resonate with it uh, tremendously. So we can kind of look at how am I being kind of put back in the box 
And even just the concept of box in itself is you have to fit into it. It, it implies that there is kind of a rigidity, really, that you are, you know, there's there's only how many sides are there to a box? Are we talking a square or <laughs> yes, a that. cube? I've, I failed, sides I failed a, geometry my first time in high school. <laughs> Um, yeah, a cube. There, there's only so many sides. There's only so many corners that you can fit into. And I, and I think of the the man box to me is a ladder inside the, uh, the box. So it's not just uh, you know horizontal. It's also vertical. Uh, an easy way of understanding this is uh, uh, football. Like it, it's masculine to like football. And if you, is that a sport? It, it's the one where they. Uh, <laughs> The, the round ball and they kick it into the goal. <laughs> Men in them tight. So for uh, in rolling a, in around, a, getting dirty. And I'm purposely using kind of a, a, a low level example. To, uh, I don't know that y'all could handle it, so, you know, some higher, uh, more emotionally charged topics. But um, <laughs> at least where I grew up, uh, you know, you, you were you were expected to like football if you were a boy. Yep. Uh, but but if you liked football, which is in the box, you you not only had to like football, but you had to uh, support the correct football team. So uh, uh, the New Orleans Saints. No, <laughs> sorry, that was a very visceral. I saw uh, Jesus. That was a, saw the steam coming out. That of your was an there. unconscious response. His so, speedo. That's your primal right emotion <laughs> kicking in. You were sad. I did not name your team. But my point here is uh, um, the that masculinity can be regional, um, and and, it, and you kind of uh, uh, never know what what you're going to get. So if you and I were watching a game together, and we, um, uh, I started giving you shit about liking the New Orleans Saints, um, you know, I started micro aggressing you. Um, I, the, the, these are the little moments that that teach men and boys and men that you it's know th- this is this is uh, it's shame. It's well, you, you like football, you're in the box, but uh, you don't you don't like the correct team, so mm-hmm. uh, uh, therefore you are less than you are. You're in the box with me, but you're under you're you're one ladder rung underneath me. So that that's more of like a social psychology perspective when we're ta- looking at in groups versus out groups. Right, right, right. So the more that you fit this specific identity, the more you are in the coveted in group. And the reality of the situation is an in group is only important by the people that think it's important. Uh, mean Girls did a really good example of this, which is based on the book Queen Bees and Wannabes. That's more about the social dynamics of, of females, but it shows that like once there's a, a coveted in group, or we see this in politics, right? Once there's a coveted in-group, their identity becomes very specific, and sometimes it's based on the opposite of what's considered the out-group. So if we are putting men as the in-group, anything that's, the that challenges yeah, <laughs> anything that challenges like uh, classic masculinity is going to go into the out-group. So anything that re- represents weakness or uh, emotions or anything that's threatening to the in-group, then, oh my gosh, let's stay away as, as far away as that, from that as possible. Right. It's the, the burnouts really versus the plastics. It's, you know, the, the internal bubble, just like if you're a Dallas Cowboys fan, um, you were going to be That's a good hockey reference. (laughs) I'm not prepared to admit to that this year, but catch me in 
1999. (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. Anyway, um, (laughs) and I mean, this might be for a totally different podcast, but also we are three men who were born and raised in Texas. Am I correct? Did y'all play football? 100%. No. I played one down in sixth grade, and then I joined the volleyball team, and I think my dad had a heart attack. (laughs) Speaking of toxic masculinity... (laughs) I remember I, so I played football from flag football all the way up until high school. And then when I got to high school, I had to choose marching band or football. And I decided marching band because there were girls in marching band. There weren't girls in football. So I feel like I was making a very responsible choice. And, uh, a very, very masculine choice. Yeah. <laughs> but yet my masculine stepdad said that that was the wrong choice. Wow. I, I just feel Meanwhile, like I'm going to have a lot of stepdad the football, stories. The, the football team are slapping butts and, you know, wearing the, those <laughs> tight pants. I ended up playing rugby in, in high school and college, and I think I told my dad, uh, you know, I was, was going to play this rough and tumble sport, and he got he got real excited, and then I, I got my uniform, uh, and I, like, put it on, and yeah, I don't know if you've ever watched rugby. The shorts are the short shorts. just a little longer than the Speedo I'm currently wearing. So. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> no he's not um i had a thought about whatever man rugby band. doesn't fuck around because no. that, that's you're essentially you playing no worse than football yeah without all. the gear so if anything is more masculine it's definitely rugby i read a study a while back that that men who uh perform masculinity uh to a extreme extent in one area of their life can can do uh a kind of store it so I, I that that resonated with me it's like i'm doing this manly thing playing rugby which means i can go over here and like write poetry and and be romantic and have have feelings and and so there's a i think little, a lot of men who balance play, there a lot of men who play rugby have accents too which is kind of the romantic aspect of that but getting back to my point is we're all from texas we're all you know i don't want to say texas is the deep south but I mean, we are kind of in a very southern point of the country, and there's also this like southern male expectation that you should be X Y Z. You should be a gentleman. You should be God fearing. You exactly. should be white. Yes. You should be. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking Play about. Play football. This was completely unrehearsed, but yes, my my granddad actually was from Mobile, Alabama, and I remember him asking me as a very young child. Um, is he going to grow up to play football <laughs> and look at me now <laughs> <laughs> playing football? <laughs> God, no. Um, I watched football though. <laughs> Another stepdad story. I remember I, did y'all hunt? Did y'all grow up hunting? That's uh, yeah, a big I part did. of Southern. And I'm, I, I, I turned out to be vegan as well. <laughs> Interesting. When I decided to stop hunting, my stepdad said I would never grow up to be a real man if I didn't learn how to hunt. And I was like, well, I learned how to hunt. I just don't like hunting, but I could do it if I needed to. Nope. I'm sorry. That makes my eye twitch. <laughs> Jesus. All righty. Moving on to... Stepfather to, wound. To, <laughs> I don't know. There's the mother wound, the father wound, the least... The, Again, the he was a stellar father figure, but I like, I like these stories because in retrospect, I'm thinking like, man, that was super fucking problematic yeah. back in the day, but he was still like... He had no negative intention. That's just like yeah, how ingrained that's it was. How we're swimming in it, man. Yeah. It's the same with my dad, man. Like I'll I'll be honest, uh, my my little 10-year-old gay self watched Titanic in the movie theaters in 1997 when it was first released, and I bawled when Jack died. 
I cried and cried and cried. I thought you were going to go a different direction. No. I bawled B A W L E D, not B A L L E D. I thought Leo looked pretty good. Yeah, and and I'm a, a, a beautiful ni- man. I'm a 97% straight guy, but um, I, also, I also cried. Yeah, I, I fucking bawled my eyes out in that movie theater. And my dad was like next to me, and he was just like, Son, it's just a movie. Don't cry. Like those were his exact <laughs> words, the exact yeah. tone, the 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 lip pinching, the yeah, and th- those were the messages. I think all I can speak for all three of us that that's what we grew up with. And I want to add, you know, I, I think actually in my immediate family, uh, I did a pretty good job of of supporting me through that. But uh, going out into into the school setting. Uh, boy culture is just extremely, extremely cruel. Uh, so it, even if you have, you could have extremely emotionally intelligent parents that that nurture and 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 do all this. Yep. And, we're all nodding and, our heads because we've you, seen this at our <laughs> yeah. And you and you and so you still times. don't get out, uh, don't get out unscathed. Um, so this is uh, there, I sometimes speak of you know I, I speak of our upbringings as the mix of our family and our our culture. So there is still a a very uh, a big problem with our our boy culture that. Um, even even young men with uh, very good families. So I, and this kind of feeds back into the stigma, I think, because a lot of uh, uh, a lot of people think if you're going to if you're going to therapy, you have to have a really screwed up family, and and you don't Not always. <laughs> um, I could talk more about that, but it's a very like '90s yeah. perspective. Like I feel like a lot of movies back in the in the '90s that were about anything mental health related or like a psycho attacking and killing people. It was like, Oh, the parents really screwed them up. Or there'd be like a flashback of like very problematic family of origin. So we just came to believe that any pathological behavior was as a result of troubled parenting. Scream two, anyone? <laughs> Billy's mom was the killer. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, which one was scream, scream three was she was in college no, or was scream, that scream two? Scream two. I didn't yeah. like horror movies. I was a very sensitive boy. Wow. You didn't watch Scream? I, I didn't. You never seen Scream before? Bruh, it was scary. I I thought the Lion King was scary. So y'all oh, need to yeah. just That was a fucked up family of origin right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, episode three will be uh, a family of origin analysis of the Lion King. <laughs> that would be that'd be a good or just like family dynamics. In Disney movies, yes. oh fuck yes! That or sounds the like problematic, a, toxic masculinity, like a cracked after hours episode. Oh yes. All right, moving on to gender roles. So, what? And when I say gender roles and men, what do y'all automatically think of? Just off the bat, one, two, three, go. Bread in the shape of genitals. Okay. Get it, are, like, the, are those traditional gender roles? <laughs> gender roles. Uh, it took me a second but i'm like wait (laughs) what bread like i was anyway i was gonna go down a rabbit hole with that well i think about um the uh, what comes up for me is uh, i sometimes talk about shame (laughs) i sometimes talk about i talk about shame like all the time and I think the, the the three most potent uh feelings of shame that a man can experience are provider shame, 
protector shame and shame as a lover. And so when I think about roles, um, th- those three roles come up for me. Is that original or is that an archetype thing? Because that's very, I feel like, spot on. Very so Jungian. Provider yeah. shame, protector shame. Lover. Lover shame. Huh. That's I, so I, I, I get this from uh, Stephen Stozny, and I think ho- hopefully at the end uh, um, we'll maybe go around and, and give our best uh, resources for men. Uh, but he has this whole thing, a whole theory about the fear-shame dynamic between men and women um, and, and men being profoundly vulnerable to shame, uh, particularly in these three areas. Mm. Wow. Did it I just, just sounds super smart. That's amazing. I just dropped I'm just, some... I'm so, I'm, my wheels, my therapeutic wheels are turning right now as you kind of say this, but I'll, basically men and women are vastly, uh, they, they, their expectations are vastly different, right? Men are taught to not express themselves whatsoever. I don't know. As we've already about. covered. And women are taught to express themselves a lot. Um, and I, I mean, we can kind of pick but, that one apart. But even building on that, I, I'm thinking back to, I used to run these groups for perpetrators of domestic violence who were court mandated to be there, um, which is a very, very interesting work. It was very fulfilling cool. when it was fulfilling and it was heartbreaking when it was heartbreaking, right. essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was interesting going around because there would be, it was a... Um, this was a, a very curriculum-based groups that we would have to run, and there would be one about family of origins. Like, where did we get this idea of masculinity? Where did we get this idea? And it was always in that week that we would talk about, you know, what brought you here. There was always the accountability statement. Like, what what are you accountable for that brought you to these groups? And almost like nine times out of ten, it was something uh, finances or it was something like ego-related. And that just really resonates with what Hayden was saying with like the protector, the provider that if it was finances, like the, the male, cause I was running the men's group, it would be, they were uh, hypersensitive about not being the breadwinners or coming mm-hmm. up short or not being able to pay, pay the bills um, through no fault of their own. But I think a lot of that guilt and shame was projected onto the relationship or sublimated onto the partner, which led to the domestic violence or intimate partner violence situation. Um, so that's super interesting. It really is. I, I think shame is perhaps the uh, the feeling that we act on the most. It's the one we talk about the least and act on the most. And and for a lot of men, we learn to medicate shame through rage or beer, uh, chest pounding. I don't, I don't know what uh, speedos, but uh, <laughs> wiener measuring. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a pissing That's contest. A, that'll be in scene three of Mariah. You can delete that. We're not, <laughs> we're, we're not going to measure our, each other's wieners on. Watch her not delete it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just more authentic to leave it in, guys. Well, <laughs> I, I was reading. That's I, what she said. But, but no, like, sh- okay, so now we're on the topic of shame and wieners. Think back to like the earliest experience of shame as a little boy. It's like, oh, dick measuring or wiener jokes or seeing each other measuring. in the shower like at football practice. Like there was uh, that was like I can think of of like the the first experience of shame. There was I was the only guy on the team, so it was really awkward. <laughs> and then the shame after that is 
who's going to kiss a girl first or who's going to have a girlfriend first. You know, there was all that shame. There was the, the fear of being the last one to do that. Even if and you're there was gay. shame associated with it. You know, even if you're gay and you haven't come out yet, there's still that heteronormative shame that you have to kiss a girl. You have to go all the way with a girl. And if you're not, then you're not a man or you're in, you're an, an F word. So I, I'm all just amazed at all the stuff that's floating to the surface. But yep. uh, I had a really good friend in, in grade school who ended up coming out in, uh, in college. And um, I remember uh, him being called the F word over and over again growing up. And I, I, I came to his defense. I was, you know, was trying to step into my, my privilege and my power. And, and I said, you know, so uh, I'm not going to say his name, but so-and-so is not gay. He's just sensitive. And so, you know, e- even, even as a well-intended, uh, you know, uh, 10th grader, I uh, still had internalized this idea that... Um, Men cannot be sensitive. Well, we can't be gay. Oh yeah. So uh, uh, you know, and it, it, it he turned out he uh, came out later, and so I, I think about that a lot. About that, that what what my internalized uh, homophobia there, and uh, I, I was sensitive enough and empathetic enough to kind of look at the bullying and go, "That's not cool." But I'm glad that you did. I really am. But I, I, I wasn't defending him for the right reasons necessarily. But I think your heart was in the right place. Just like. like we've been saying, we're we're swimming in it. We're we're really steeped in in this uh, uh, acculturation. Yep, that's a good exploration into like microaggressions. I feel like that'll 100%. be a nice like future episode where it's like, oh no, he's not gay. He's sensitive. But like the well intention is still <laughs> right. A micro microaggression. Stay tuned oh, for microaggressions yes. on top. Ugh, I'm getting wet just thinking about that. All right. <laughs> What else we got? But my <laughs> my 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 um my thought here is that men and women have the same needs, the same emotions, the same feelings, right? We all experience unless you're on the um psychopath spectrum, unless you have zero empathy whatsoever. Um all of us have the same emotions, whether what whatever gender you are, you have you have shame, you have sadness, you have vulnerability, you you have all the different emotions, and yet men are Hanger. taught hangry. Yes, that is one. Everyone gets hangry. I just got paid. I'm, I want to go eat. Okay. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> no, yeah, like I, I'm just men are taught to not express those needs and those emotions. Um, but so are women. Like the the. Other side of that is in my social psychology class, we were talking about how gender roles get defined like pretty early on in age. So uh, little boys who are loud and rambunctious are seen as like leadership material and uh, standing up for themselves. And that, that kind of behavior is rewarded because American culture at the end of the day really rewards competition. And I think that really kind of comes down to like our capitalistic roots. It's the man box yeah. as well. But little girls that speak their minds that are outgoing, like, ooh, that's not ladylike. Like, you need to bury that shit down. Like, you should call that the woman box. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone has a box. But uh, yeah, gender roles are interesting. I find it interesting uh, how much my mom 
really emphasize. So there was a period of time between where my biological father passed away and my stepfather came in where my mom, like, I feel like overcorrected with me being masculine, like anything that was remotely feminine. She shut that shit down right away. Uh, But what's interesting about her is that she is a female or she's retired now, but she was a female in a predominantly male dominated field. She was a police officer. She was a sassy Mexican police officer kicking down doors, taking names, doing all that stuff. Uh, So she was a female in uh, a male, typically male gendered role overcorrecting at home. But then that didn't really matter because now I'm a male in a predominantly female dominated role. So that's gender roles are interesting. Yeah. My, and my mom was a, uh, uh, she sold 18 wheelers. So (laughs) very much a male dominated field. And, um, uh, she kicked ass at it, but I I have this memory of of getting picked up at, at school and she picked me up in a, uh, a dump truck chassis, basically a, a Chevy C4500. Um, mask for mask, brah. Yeah, and I got in and, and I, I said, she'll never let me live this down, which is why I'm sharing it, but uh, I said, I'm never going to sell trucks because that's what girls do. And so <laughs> at this wow. tender young age of six or seven, five, six or seven, um, I I had a really distorted view <laughs> of... Uh, of the the roles and I, I just saw my mom doing that and <laughs> and I'm sure we could get Freudian here and you know identifying with with my father who was uh, I'm not sure what he was doing at the time but um, but kind of pushing back against my mom and rebelling against her to, to differentiate myself as a as a man and I I, I can't, couldn't possibly sell sell big rigs that's <laughs> that's what women do <laughs> and so it's wow. this really funny kind of distorted little, isn't it uh, and and now here i am just like you in this uh, <laughs> female dominated field yep. but that's such a great example of how arbitrary gender roles are 100 yes like it, it just makes no sense of what we classify as masculine versus feminine if we consider what's the easy way out in avoidance as like weakness then I feel like the chest pounding, the overcompensation, that's the easy route. The harder mm-hmm. shit is owning your shit, owning your emotions, being vulnerable, opening up. That takes strength and courage. No matter this, what gender you are. Yeah, no matter what gender, no matter what experience, no matter what's going on. But yet we consider the alternative, the avoidance, the chest pounding, the dick measuring, all of the, oh, I'm too tough to talk about feelings mm-hmm. as the more masculine of the two options. You know, it's funny as I... <laughs> As I'm like, as you're saying this, um, we, we're all kind of going on a Google sheet and um, I don't know who did it, but someone put like an eight and then an equal sign and then a, a capital D and I just added a bunch of equal signs. So it looks <laughs> like a big penis. I'm really internally 12 years old. Um, but I, I want to also expound upon the fact. So everyone... When I say narcissistic personality disorder or people with narcissistic tendencies, just the the very powerful male image comes up, right? So, and even just statistically, narcissistic personality disorder, otherwise known as NPD, um, is way more prevalent among men than women. I don't know the exact statistic. Um, I know that only 200,000 people are diagnosed with it a year. But um, it's characterized by an excessive need for admiration, disregard for others' feelings, an inability to handle any criticism, and a sense of entitlement. I asked that um, as we were kind of uh, prepping for the show, and 
y'all had some interesting answers of, of, you know, who does that remind you of? And y'all actually came up with some really good ones, but I think of when I, when I was, what? we just listed our exes. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think of, um, I think of the stereotypical male archetype when I, I think of the narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder or the typical person that's diagnosed with it. And I can even go back on years and years of clients and, Typically, men are men have more narcissistic tendencies, and I didn't know what y'all th- what y'all's thoughts were on that. If y'all y'all have any anything to add? Well, according to the American Psychological Association, research supports. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they <laughs> so make shit up. That was a very narcissistic. <laughs> that was a joke. Speaking by the of way, which. I, I, APA, if you're listening, we're we're looking for sponsors. Please don't sue us. <laughs> Uh, but the APA recognizes that most personality disorders are learned behaviors. Um, there are some genetic predispositions, and of course, there's like past trauma and abuse. But narcissism is a learned behavior, and it serves a purpose. But I feel like that goes back to what we were saying about uh, molding men into that men box. If you feel like this is the only way to survive, this is the only way to compete in society, then of course you're going to learn narcissistic traits, especially in a capitalistic society. Like you have to think you have to put yourself first before anybody else. And if that, if you do that to an extreme, then it becomes pathological, which then becomes, uh, meeting the diagnostic criteria of narcissistic personality disorder. So it, it does not surprise me at all that men are diagnosed at higher rates than women. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that as we're kind of talking about this content, it's bringing up a lot for like three men, um, three men recording this episode. And we're, we're talking about a lot of these about kind of emotional expression and narcissism and the sense of entitlement and what, what it means to be a man and what it doesn't mean to be a man. This is bringing up, I think this is, we're all pretty vulnerable right now. Wouldn't you say, I mean, just, we're all kind of talking about just past, emotional experiences from our, our male caregivers that uh, I think is um, it's bringing up a lot of stuff to the surface. Thankfully I'm on my, my third, third beer. I forgot to ask y'all <laughs> yeah. what you're, what you're, I'm going to break up the vulnerability. This is a defense mechanism of mine. When I start to feel too, too vulnerable, <laughs> too vulnerable. I'll break it up, but, but I'll, I'll kind of come back to it. But uh, what, what are y'all drinking? I'm drinking a, a, a violet, the blue from a local brewery high sign. I gotta actually go look at my. You don't. You I don't. Dulce do, Vida. <laughs> Dulce, is that the tequila? Tequila. Okay, yeah. I'm drinking Dulce uh, Dulce Vida tequila <laughs> with a strawberry margarita mix that I used in um, in in Patrick's shaker. Which I mean, we're I finally all on the same board. Dulce Vida is made here in Austin. What? Are it's serious? currently my favorite tequila. Yeah. Totally unintentional. They have really good uh, flavored tequila. Dulce Vita, if you're listening and you want to jump on sponsorship, buy local. The first time that we recorded, uh, we were all drunk off of Cosmos made with <laughs> da, 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 Deep Eddie Vodka, which is also Austin-based. So if you are listening, do Deep the right Eddie, thing. <laughs> please. We need sponsors. What am I drinking? You saw it. I'm not good with beers. Stash? It's made by Independence Brewing Company. Oh, all right. It is an IPA, and it tastes good. Okay. That's beer terms, right? I'm gonna, <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna stick with me here. I'm gonna go out on a on a limb here. 
what what I just did here it was an attempt to to regulate my own nervous system. We were you were talking about vulnerability, and I I kind of titrated it a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that it's a therapist term. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, titrate means to help me out here. Talk about beer. <laughs> the, the Greek <laughs> word for talking about uh, dosing or kind of uh, mitigating a little bit, uh, just doing just enough. But um, it means to ascertain the amount of a constituent by oh, that's no, a that's chemistry not, term. Yeah, no, fuck that. <laughs> um, continuously measure and adjust the balance of. I, I am a chemistry minor. Uh, I use it to brew beer mostly these days. But uh, there, there's some very interesting research that came out in the '70s uh, that compared the ability of uh, uh, or sex differences in the ability to maintain gaze. That's G A Z E. Gaze. Why, why are you looking at Ian? Mutual gaze. The ability <laughs> to maintain. Snorting. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I had like <laughs> I made like three. Sh- my margarita has like three uh, tequila shots in it. I, I would be down to rename our podcast "Mutual Gaze." Mutual, Mutual gaze. <laughs> When I pull a Beyonce and go solo, that's what my <laughs> name will be. I called it. So the study's <laughs> called Sex Differences in Neonatal Eye Contact Time. And it showed that little boys uh, do not hold eye contact as well. And uh, oh, that's interesting. Some elaborations uh, uh, from this um, uh, basically found that uh, from the moment we're born, we have a... Uh, a greater sensitivity to physiological hyper arousal. So when we look away, we're, we're regulating our physiology and we look back and uh, we, we want to re-engage in connection. Eye contact is, is how infants connect. And um, a, a lot of times we look away and we look back and the caregiver has averted their gaze because they assume that we weren't interested or, or didn't care and uh, I, I think it's such a – there's been a whole theory that's kind of been elaborated out of this that uh, I won't uh, necessarily go into. But uh, this seems to be one of the physiological basises for the vulnerability to shame that, mm-hmm. uh, that men have. Uh, it, it's kind of about um, the, the vulnerability to hyperarousal and then um, met with our socialization – we don't want to talk. It's harder to tolerate feelings. It's harder, to, and then it's harder to talk about them. So it's kind of this this double whammy. So uh, I just th- kind of thought that was funny that we started to talk about being vulnerable, and I asked what you were drinking to sort of it's basically averting gaze. So you talk about vulnerability, but I'm ready to reconnect. That's super interesting. Okay, so what no, you're I describing? I want to keep titrating. What brand of speedo are you wearing? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's called the Daytona Dong Sarong. <laughs> It you is. had that right in the chamber. <laughs> That's what it's called. It's a denim print from Shinesty.com. Oh, if you are wow. looking uh, for sponsorship, Shinesty.com. Ooh, I feel like. Anyways, anyway, so the so. article you were referring to was written by Joan Hittleman and Robert Dykes or Dix? D I C K E S. Uh, but that's super interesting. I had no idea that there was actual. Dickies? Data dickies. Dicks. <laughs> Behind eye contact. And the, but that, that, that goes into the, the concept of um, epigenetics and how those traits are like passed down from generation to generation. 
So I'm wondering if did that article go into like cultural differences? Like was that done in America? Like other cultures that either favor or disfavor eye contact? Was there any difference in them? That I don't know. That's a very good question. And even just saying I don't know, that's a that's a vulnerable, vulnerable thing right vulnerable. there. Men men are taught to not say that I don't know. That was a big turning point in my friend Fuck. group. I've had this say, I don't know why. Yeah, like you said, this is bringing up a bunch of shit. Yeah. <laughs> I've been very fortunate. I've had the same three best friends since like third grade. Two of them since third grade. One of them I met in eighth grade. Um, but we all went to high school, college, and we've all remained on this like same group chat. I remember one time we were talking about something and we can all be like know-it-alls in the chat. But one time we were talking about something, one of them was just straight up like, I don't know enough about that to have an opinion. And there was something that just like really struck me by that because I feel like even with your closest friends, like there's still that element of competition with other males. That's just so innate to mm-hmm. our gender. And I don't feel that with you guys, honestly. I mean, we're all, I, I think, um, academically or, um, scholastically de- decorated, I feel like, but I mean, I, I don't feel that competitive vibe. And I, I think this is an Fabulous. exception because decorated. when, three men get together just in general there, there tends to be some of that competitiveness. The, the... I'm going to talk so much more about vulnerability than you. I'm going to get so more vulnerable than you, bro. <laughs> you Bitch, I was know. born vulnerable. <laughs> I was born before I was even born. Think about that. Well, I came up with vulnerability, the concept. So I wrote a book about <laughs> it. So. Kristen Wiig, anybody? Okay. Oh. Is that Bethany Frankel? <laughs> no, I am not allowed to reference her this week. Um, anyway. For those of you that don't know, Ian gets three Bethany Frankel references per week. If he decides to bank them for the podcast, that's fine. But if he uses it in our text thread, that counts towards his three. Yeah, so. that was with, me. With my partner, and I've already used all three of them <laughs> this earlier this week. Um, well, I was going to talk. Uh, I went down a massive rabbit hole, so uh, we'll see what what ends up on the cutting room floor, but um, I was going to talk a little bit about uh, narcissism. Uh, and oh, let's bring it back to Hayden. <laughs> no, I feel bad because we, we skipped everyone, over that. There was a big thing that Hayden needed to talk about and we just kind of Everyone pay attention it. to me while I talk about narcissism. <laughs> um, I, I'm, as... Y'all may or may not know, I I am big into archetypes and mythology, and I think it's really interesting to look cross-culturally at at some of these things. But um, what we know is narcissism does go back to a Greek myth of narcissist and echo, which I find uh, really mirrors when when I do couples therapy uh, in some of these more uh, toxic relationships. So uh narcissist was this this hunter and uh echo was this uh he's a this beautiful uh well accomplished hunter echo was this uh you know very alluring um beautiful wood nymph and uh they they both ended up kind of getting into some hot water with uh with the gods so i think uh if i remember correctly uh narcissist was punished by uh nemesis which is the god, uh, uh, goddess of revenge. Goddess of revenge is a woman. That's super cool. I'm going to have to think on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's triggering some things for me. But, um, <laughs> and uh, um, Echo was 
punished by Hera uh, for, for, of all things, running her mouth uh, too much. So uh, as the myth goes, Narcissus being punished for his arrogance, he falls in love with his own reflection in a pool and uh, Echo's punishment for uh, having a voice is that she can only repeat Echo. Hmm. So um, Narcissus is staring at the pool of his own reflection, uh, saying the, these uh, uh, amazing things to himself, very self-involved, and Echo can only, only repeat back to him uh, what he is saying to himself. And neither of them connect because he is too self-obsessed and she does not have a voice. So when I work with uh, a, a traditional heterosexual couple where this isn't always the dynamic, but the, there is, uh, for a lot of men, uh, an element of narcissism and for a lot of women, an element of disempowerment, uh, not having a voice. So I help Echo get her voice back and I pull narcissist uh, uh, from looking down into the pool and uh, kind of help him come back up into connection. I think it's a, a really beautiful myth. Uh, yes, yes. Beautiful, tragic uh, in the way it ends. They, they, like, like all uh, Greek stories, they end up both dead. They, he kind of wastes away because he, he can't pull himself away from the reflection to eat and, uh, uh, and she can't pull him, herself away from him. And so they, they both just kind of wither there in the forest. Um, so don't, don't wither away. Uh, get therapy if you need it. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Patrick has these. Um, Thanks for paying attention to me. No, I love it. Patrick has these, these pictures in the back um, that are very, as you were kind of talking about, like just the mythological creatures, I was kind of getting lost in these. Are these from New Orleans, Patrick? Hell yeah, they yeah, are. They, they look very New Orleans-y and also <laughs> just kind of very just surreal and phantasmic. And um, yeah, very good. I love that, actually. Also, so that was, what'd you say, Greek or Roman? Greek. And those were written, what, thousands of years ago? At least the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> so 200, uh, 2000, same thing. But just, but like how relevant that still is in present yes. day. Like yeah. that—that's what's super interesting mm-hmm. that that transcends time. Like so many, like we've had sessions of two thousand years to get our shit together, and we haven't figured it out. We have it. Well, hopefully, a bunch of people will be listening to this podcast and get their shit together. <laughs> Just kidding. So we have been talking about we've been kind of skirting this issue of men and vulnerability um, as it's vulnerable because it is. <laughs> It's vulnerable to to talk about feelings, to be in therapy, to mention that you're in therapy. But before we get into men actually being in therapy, let's talk about vulnerability in men. So it's wired within us for men to be a list of rigid things like tough and unfeeling and cold and pragmatic and compartmentalized. But the importance of men opening up in sessions, I think, is extremely, extremely important. The importance of men opening up in session when they're going to see a therapist is very, very, very high. I don't want to say it's more important than women opening up to therapy. I think it's it's really just a, it's a spectrum of different things, I feel like. I think um, but society teaches men to not open up, to not be vulnerable, 
to not be seen, to not be heard, to not have the need to be validated. And I think that the men that we see, um, we, we give them a space, I feel like, to be seen, to be open, to um, basically be able to know that another human cares about them, I feel like. Um, but, I mean, why don't we talk about that? That makes me think of uh, the quote by that's often attributed to Albert Einstein, but it's in relation to intelligence where he said, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it'll spend its whole life thinking it's stupid. So if you judge masculinity or you, or the metric for being considered a cisgender male is to be tough, unfeeling, cold, pragmatic, compartmentalized, then yeah, it's going to feel its whole life thinking it's off that it's not right. Or it doesn't deserve to call itself a man when I mean, we know things exist on a spectrum. We we are beyond the point that the world is a black and white situation. There are shades of gray all around. We exist in a gray area. There's no black and white. I wonder how much of that also is influenced just by the advent of technology and how we are all far more connected and thus more able to compare ourselves to others. So earlier I talked about the, the social comparison theory where we base our own identity on the world around us. But now our scope, our sphere of what we consider uh, available and ready for us to compare ourselves to has grown significantly than, say, like the 1940s, where really your your view of what a man was only within you, like your family and your community. Like you didn't know what being a man in Arkansas was like or in Alaska was like. You only knew what was in the world mm-hmm. around you. So I wonder if that's what's this this period of like enlightenment is allowing us to see that there is more than one definition of quote unquote man. I think of the, t- the typical um, heterosexual male Tinder photo and it's a man standing, holding up the fish that he just caught. <laughs> Shirtless <laughs> with, uh, yep. Uh, with, at like, the gym. Oakley's. Like you, you brought it to the gym. To- <laughs> exactly. So I, I don't know. I'm just, I think honestly that, so, I mean, we were mentioning earlier that over probably 70% of my uh, caseload is is male. Whether it's uh, teen male or adult male or gay male or queer male, um, most of our caseload is, is men. And I, I think people tend to kind of gravitate towards, they, they feel more, most comfortable in someone who is um, very similar to them. Um and I do, I think that we all kind of provide a space for the men who feel attacked by every which way, by fellow men, by other women in their life, um, to, to be able to express themselves, I think, in a healthy way. So, And I keep talking about shame as being uh, kind of the, the prime vulnerability uh, for men and uh, kind of physiologically even evolutionarily we can look back at other social animals and and this is where the protector shame comes from i think in part is if you can't protect females in uh in a lot of other social animals you you are vulnerable you are vulnerable to mm-hmm. uh being outcast uh from the the pack and dying uh and you're vulnerable to uh other males uh attacking you so this is um you know, I don't want to blame all of our woes on on uh, kind of this uh, evolutionary heritage, but it it just points to how deep this vulnerability runs. 
And so when a man comes to me in, uh, in therapy, I am uh, uh, endeavoring to be just completely attuned to that shame uh, because the, the worst thing for me is someone comes in with their shame and then they let, leave feeling unheard or, uh, or worse, further shamed. Uh, if, if they come to me and I can't help them, that's, that's one thing, but uh, I never want someone to leave feeling that they are, uh, somehow broken or, um, uh, or, or just screwed up. So, uh, th- this, this vulnerability, um, we're, we're talking about being able to open up, uh, in session, but, to to open up about Fear, for example, is is sometimes easier. I think fear kind of drives us to to want to talk about things, so that we can uh, find the uh, kind of ease the fear. But uh, shame sometimes uh, makes us want to cover ourselves, and I think that's a big challenge for men. I'm smiling because I, that's now like registered fucked up Patrick child story number five, which is. I remember distinctly uh, being at my grandmother's house when uh, some loud noise happened and I was like, oh my God, that scared me. And she was like, you're a little boy. You should never say that you were scared. You can say that you were frightened or startled, but you you can't be scared. And I remember at the time thinking mm-hmm. like, that's confusing, but yeah. That's I remember it. going over to... Which I is had, shame. Yeah. Shaming, shaming the <laughs> feeling of shaming fear. shaming you. <laughs> How dare you have this very How layered natural that is. animalistic uh, instinct for survival. <laughs> I remember um, my best friend, one of my best friends growing up, happened to be a girl that I <clears throat> that I dated. <laughs> it sounds so awkward to say, but I, I I've dated a girl. Um, no, but I, I dated a girl growing up, and we ended up. You know, she obviously realized that was I was not uh, relationship material, um, and I uh, ended up becoming really good friends with her. But I remember going over to one of her like gets family get togethers like her family loved me and I would go over there a lot but she had a get together and my my grandma actually came with me my mom and my grandma came with me and all the men were in the garage talking about men's stuff and I was in the house with a bunch of bunch of girls just you know doing what I felt comfortable doing and uh, my grandma was just like well why aren't you outside with the man like just in a very very (laughs) shaming tone and so yeah, it's just, and I don't think she realized what she was doing, but you know, as a teenager hearing that going like, well, am I wrong for, you know, staying in the house with the girls and the women? No, I, I was doing what felt comfortable at the time. So, but let's move on to men in therapy, men who seek therapy, men who go to therapy, men who are actively seeing a therapist. So as you pointed out, Hayden, healthy communities need healthy men. And you've actually given me a really, really good perspective. Drunkenly waiting in the line at Arlo's last year, if you remember at uh, Cheer Up Charlie's, um, you were kind of... No? Podcast material? (laughs) (laughs) No. Lay it on. I'll be vulnerable. Are we talking about old Cheer Up Charlie's or new Cheer Up Charlie's? The one on Red Red River. Yeah, so old. This oh, Arlo's. That's vegan. Yeah, the vegan, <laughs> the vegan restaurant that I actually will probably go to after this. Um, we, you were, you actually gave me a really, really good perspective. Men are shamed so much. Men are made out to be villains. 
men are X, Y, Z. And actually most men are okay. Um, you know, you, you kind of, you really open my eyes and it's like men are kind of emasculated in so many ways. Do you remember this conversation? We yeah, were very, very drunk. Um, but yeah, just we probably being toxic masculine my, myself. <laughs> well, I, I think it's so important for men to come to this place of understanding that men are good. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to say that again for men are good. Um, I know it, it blew my mind kind of when I, when I, uh, uh, first realized that, um, I, I spent a lot of my life, I think, you know, wanting to be a, a different kind of better kind of man than what I had been uh, exposed to. And, but I had internalized the sense that, that men must be bad because I keep seeing that men do these bad things. Um, and we just, we have to get to this place that we are good because uh, it, shitty people, people who think that they are shitty will continue to do shitty, shitty things. things. Um, I, I just had this conversation with a, with a very good friend of mine who was in a, a tough spot. And, uh, one of the things he kept saying was just how, how terrible that he is. And, um, you know, uh, hoping that he can get some help kind of breaking out of that, that way of thinking, um, because it's just a, it's just a cycle and it's a big stick to beat ourselves with. So, uh, what what I work with men in doing is is uh, you know getting a hold of the behavior that you know we consider bad quote unquote whether it's raging or abuse or you know rampant uh, self medication not like what we're doing like you know <laughs> podcasting is self medication <laughs> <laughs> no drinking and podcasting is self medication. <laughs> You just don't want to podcast too much to to where it impacts other areas of your life. <laughs> but uh, but but ma- maintaining, or rather, I think even uh, reconnecting is a better word. Reconnecting to our inherent goodness uh, that just becomes so important to me. So I'm going to say it again: Men are good. Good as a concept. The concept of of men is. So you're you're fighting against the the stigma that if you're a man and you show up, you should not be yelled at, right? I think what I'm fighting against is um, the 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 difficulty men have in uh, internalizing the 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 feminist critique of toxic masculinity, which I think is very valid, extremely valid, but rather than looking at that and going, okay, there's some really good stuff here that I need to look at and, and, and work on. Um, we kind of go the other way with it and, and internalize it as we either go, you know, smash up against it and go the other way. And this is, you know, uh, men go their own way and, and the red pillars, uh, or we swing the other way and we go, we get kind of in the supplicant position that, that, you know, we, we just suck. We either go shame or, or, or grandiose. And there is a healthy middle ground where I can stay connected to my value and my my goodness as a man, but uh, uh, clean up my shit if that's what I need to do. Mm-hmm. I like that. That makes me think of. 
I feel like society has been using toxic masculinity and fragile masculinity interchangeably, but I don't think that they should be. I don't think that they're synonyms. Mm-hmm. I think what you're describing is more like the fragility of masculinity yes. of like yes. anything that threatens it, like, oh, holy fuck, I need to overcorrect and be mm-hmm. like, let me eat steak and punch a guy. Like, that's fragile masculinity. Like, the need, I think my stepdad is more in the lines of the toxic masculinity because it isn't done with intentions. It isn't done to, like, avoid uh, being misconstrued with feminine. Like, that's more along the lines of the the fragility of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So I think when we do the difficult work of kind of confronting, the, and it's it's muddy and it's murky, um, and uh, which, as I'm saying that out loud, it's it's like, masculinity wants you to be kind of black and white. Uh, and so being able to tolerate the distress of this uncertainty, um, as we're kind of muddling through some of this stuff is, um, uh, heroic. I think it's courageous. So I think that men who come into therapy are, are heroes. I think a lot of them are putting an end to, or stemming a an intergenerational pattern, mm-hmm. uh, and, I, and I'll tell them that I think you're I think you're being heroic right now. Consider that stolen. Steal it. <laughs> I'm interested in the future of that topic specifically now that uh, veteran mental health has been such a hot button topic and a spotlight in the mental health field, and you're seeing a lot of organizations pop up like Twenty Two Kill that's really focused on veteran suicide. I mean, you don't get more alpha male than like uh, an American war hero, but the goal is to get more veterans into counseling. So I'm wondering if like that'll help fight the stigma or it'll be encouraged more for men to like actually reach out and talk through what they need to talk through. Because I think the military mindset is fuck your feelings. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and we're, as you said, you know, the suicide rate, of veterans is alarmingly high i think because they are taught to tamp down everything everything i think they need to do that to do what right yeah they do but we when they go back to to the normal space for them to to be able to to process that so this is where i um you used that word earlier that amazing word compartmentalization so my my uh the antithesis for me of, or the antidote to compartmentalization is integration. And and if we're going to ask these men to uh, go overseas and do some, some really difficult, we'll just say uh, things, then we need to have a space for them to, to integrate that. We, uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I I love a man in uniform, (laughs) (laughs) but I have that conversation with, with, um, first responders that I work with or veterans that I work with, or even um, some of these teens that I have that are of like higher intelligence and making the distinction of like not acknowledging your emotions is not the same as not experiencing them because they're still there in the background. We earlier, we talked about like the role of the unconscious place in in our decisions Mm -hmm. just because you're not acknowledging them or you're ignoring them or you're burying them deep down doesn't mean that they're not having a direct impact on your day-to-day functioning. Mm -hmm. Well, Hayden, do you want to talk about flattening the suicide curve i do uh, this has been a year of flattening the curve hashtag um COVID-19. and you brought several charts and graphs with you i, I did see. I, and i'm going to use these as visual aids for our, our <laughs> podcast here you did okay i'm looking <laughs> i'm looking at his laptop uh, looking like <laughs> expecting to see a bunch of like pie graphs and charts they're and they're in it's here just a it's cindy lopper fan page i don't understand the, what you're googling <laughs> guys just want to have fun burned into my mind 
There's been a lot of uh, talk this year about flattening the curve and, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to COVID, and uh, that is awesome. Um, what what I think has been um, – COVID is not awesome. Let me correct myself there. The the um, <laughs> Hayden just got us defunded, so that's uh, – maybe we'll, maybe we'll clap What there. he's saying is not representative of what we believe here at Therapy on Tap. <laughs> There's been a lot of talk this year of flattening the curve when it comes to COVID. And um, COVID has just been such a, a devastating uh, illness in this country. And so getting that curve down so that we don't overwhelm our resources has been uh, so extremely important. Um, I, 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 I've been talking about another curve for several years, and it's uh, really why I do this work, and that is the male suicide curve. And so uh, if you kind of look in your, your mind's eye here, if you were to imagine uh, a curve, the male suicide curve uh, starts at zero when we're born, and um, it, it kind of goes up and peaks uh, in uh, early midlife. And then it kind of uh, goes back down again, uh, and then it and then it goes up exponentially, uh, sort of in our our uh, uh, starting in our fifties and sixties, and we do not see the same sort of curve with with women. First of all, the the curve is not as high, so um, not only do men uh, complete suicide at a higher rate, uh, the curve for us is bimodal goes up and then it comes down and then it goes up again and it, it does not come back down. And, uh, I find this really heartbreaking. And, uh, if this was a human condition thing, I think we would see this in, in both men and women. And so the fact that these curves are so strikingly different, uh, tells me that the, the more that we are exposed to, uh, the man box, the more that we are exposed to um, toxic masculinity, the more likely we are to end our own lives. And that's, uh, that's why I do this work. Um, I ultimately think that the antidote to so many of the things that are plaguing men, whether it's depression or uh, substance abuse, uh, anxiety, um, all these things is connection. And so uh, my hope is that we can start building kind of these micro communities of, uh, of men who are uh, pursuing health. And I think uh, uh, as we do that, our, our communities uh, to, to go back to Ian, what you said earlier, healthy communities need healthy men. So these are all kind of inter interwound. Mm -hmm. And the, just to add on to that, I mean, I, I just, I do, I think of the amount of loneliness that men experience just throughout their lifetimes because just contrasting men and women, you know, I, I, women have more of a community, I think. I mean, it's okay for women to admit that they're vulnerable. Men, again, goes back to the vulnerability piece of, it's not okay to admit it. It's not okay to, to admit, Hey, I'm going through a divorce and I'm fucking lonely. And that I think compounds the suicide rate in men because they're taught to not admit 
when they're they're vulnerable in any kind of way, whether it's loneliness, depression, sadness, you name it. Um, so yeah, there, there's great validity, I think, and just men seeking therapy curves the suicide rate. I feel like so. I think the the combination of therapy plus community is just a uh, that's a winning combo. I don't think I've told you all this uh, in our personal lives, but my biological father actually uh, died by suicide. And I'm, mm. I'm, I'm thinking about the factors that led up to it. He was a white male. He was a police officer, although he was running for some specific political office that when he lost, he was no longer able to be a police officer because I think like the new regime comes in and then kicks out mm-hmm. all the opponents and mm-hmm. stuff. But I think that goes back to that, that fragile masculinity that he had that fall from grace. I remember my mom describing that he wouldn't take any job that he considered beneath him. And that goes back to what Hayden was saying about that, that provider guilt Um, and that protector guilt. And that was something that I definitely struggled with a long time of how can somebody who had a family and children and everything complete that. But I think that goes back to that men have to be in this box. And if they're not in this box, then they'd have no value or worth for their life. And then that contributes to suicide. I don't think that's the truth across the page, but I feel like that was definitely the case here but it's interesting, like all these little like light bulbs that I'm having in my head. Mm-hmm. I get real worried about a guy when he starts talking about being a burden, because I think one of the most shameful places for a, a man to be is is feeling like he needs to be cared for. And so, uh, from my research, a lot of men complete suicide as an like a final act of love. Like I yeah. am going to I'm no longer a burden to you. I'm no longer a burden. And maybe you can, this is kind of a trope in movies, but may, maybe you can get the life insurance. Uh, like I can, my, my sole existence uh, is tied up in being able to provide for you. So, you know, if I can't, um, I was watching Deadpool last night and the, there's <laughs> kind that of, movie. Uh, a great, the soundtrack. great movie. I fell, fell asleep to, I needed all the violence to to <laughs> fall asleep to. Uh, I do that with horror movies. I don't know what movies. that says about me, but <laughs> no, but, I do but that he, with horror movies all the time. He uh, he leaves her to to not be this burden on her, and um and so I, I think a lot of men end up uh, completing suicide. Uh, uh, what I see a lot is it comes to relationships and work. It's loneliness or breakup or I don't want to be a burden. And, or I, I, I lost my livelihood. I, and I, there's no safety net or I would rather die than have to use the safety net. Um, or I went bankrupt. Uh, those two things seem to be, uh, at least in my, my clinical experience seem to be the biggest risk factors. That goes back to like the toxic side of the toxic masculinity that that's so ingrained that they're willing to end their life for that belief. Mm-hmm. which is just just that a belief it's there's no truth to it there's no validity to it it's their perception of their role in the world man i feel that i just want to name that you know here with you the first time i've heard that and uh so um uh about your your father so yeah dropping I, bombs tonight i'm sitting in that so if you're listening <laughs> you're too. you're getting kind of a peek behind the curtain of what happens when Real men uh, actually talk about things like this. And that, I'm not a real man. 
I'm just kidding. No, thank you for sharing that with us. Like in the most genuine way possible. I know when you say thank you for sharing, it might not sound genuine, but I, I you have dropped just hence, I think, of your like the the two gay dads or two dads um like as a joke, I think. And, and I was like <laughs> and just in my mind I went to like two gay dads, like my two my two dead dads, and I was like two dead gay dads like I, I just <laughs> I just so I mean you you've like you've given us hints of it but for you to sit here and just kind of admit it out loud I think is just so so brave so I, I think awesome. that goes back to what I was saying at the top of the episode that I'm so uncomfortable by death that I just immediately go for the gallows humor that uh I do that to my partner all the time like anytime she brings up my stepdad or biological father I'm like oh my dead dad why would you bring him up <laughs> Uh, my my dad's uh, in a urn in my closet, and my my partner sent me a picture of uh, our cat uh, <laughs> sitting on the shelf next to him, and she goes, "Mallow Marshmallow is our cat. Marshmallow wanted yeah. to hang out with your dad, so we've got a we've got a, a sense of humor around yeah. death as well." <laughs> I thought I it was like funny. This whole episode, I think, I want to just clarify. So I think to confront the big purple elephant in the room um there we've been kind of mostly talking about heteronormative male gender roles we've been talking about kind of just the um stereotypical american dad and it's you know with your you know dad and the wife and the white picket fence and the two 2.5 kids or whatever the statistic is but um also i i'm just letting i i'm i think it's 2.6 2.6 whatever think, it is population is going up it's it is 0.6 um but i mean I, i'm just saying that i i don't want to keep the men who are listening here and i don't want to limit uh the non-heterosexual or heteronormative men that are also listening to this and i i want to kind of speak up for the um amount of um there's a lack of vulnerability and i i'm i'm keeping in mind that what i'm about to say can be taken as a generalization and i i i really genuinely do not mean it this way but it's a general impression that i've gotten in the gay male community and i i don't want my community to hate me but i've noticed that gay men or queer men in general um it's also hard for us to express emotion just as much, if not more than um, heterosexual men. Um, and I think just to be born a gay man, um, there's already a strike against you for being a man because, you know, as we were talking about all, all this episode is you grew up with these messages that you are not allowed to express yourself. You're not allowed to feel, you're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to be sad. Okay. So we grow up with that. And then we grow up with the fact that, oh my gosh, I'm sexually aroused by men. I'm not allowed to be that way. So you're growing up already with the messages of you're not allowed to be emotionally expressive as a man by default, but you're also not allowed to be, you're, you're not allowed to be anything other than a heterosexual man. And having those two strikes against you makes you, I mean, to be honest, I've gone through my own stuff about it, about just kind of being emotionally vulnerable. And I, I've, I've seen that kind of happen in my community where men are so the gay men, especially are, are so quick to kind of just deviate away from emotion and turn into kind of this 
existentialist banter and kind of just turn anything into kind of a dark joke. Um, and with that darkness, I mean, you just, you think of the, the gay men that are, um, alive today who went through the eighties AIDS pandemic and had to basically learn how to survive through all of that. And of course, how do you survive through it? You make a fucking joke out of it. Um, so I'm really, I'm talking to the sect of male identifying people listening to this, um, doesn't all just have to be heterosexual cisgender men. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm speaking to the people that also uh, don't identify as heterosexual or cisgender and still identify with what we're talking about. So, But I like that because it still gives us a, a glimpse into that world, the non-cisgender but still male-identifying mm-hmm. world. But I know personally as a cisgendered male, I'm very limited um, because I don't have the wisdom of experience, but also I don't have the benefit of research because the majority of research, peer-reviewed, published articles on uh, masculinity, relationships, male uh, identity, toxic masculinity, whatever you want to qualify, it's all heteronormative. Like There's very little research, even in the year yep. 2020 or when this is released in 2021. Preach. <laughs> very little published work. And we know you're listening to this 10 years later because <laughs> it just blew up. But there's just there's Don't not jinx a lot us, Hayden. <laughs> just kidding. So future uh, scholars out there, PhD students, whatever uh, may be listening, that that is a. I'm tired of reading article after article that says limitations only identified cisgendered male uh, participants. Like there's a college to be student more. because you you just use the kids in your undergrad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so those that are affluent <laughs> enough or privileged right. enough to attend university are the only ones that deserve to be studied. That's the problem. Okay, I could get on a whole soapbox Patrick, about you just took me to church right then. <laughs> pharmaceuticals. You took words right out of my goddamn mouth. Because we only study people that are easy to access. So right. white male is what the majority of our Western yep. medicine like 100%. pertains to. Uh, that's a that's a hey, whole hey, other. That, episode is, that right could there. be a, a, another episode. And, and having worked with a number of you know uh, persons of color and uh, uh, different uh, sexual and gender identities, uh, uh, I remind them of that, and they re- remind me of that. That the, uh, there is uh, uh, most of what we know in this um, in our uh, westernized sciences is based on white men right and it's not all no offense to us it's not all about white men or heterosexual white men so heterosexual cisgender white men i'd bring it back to uh, our conversation earlier about the man box and i was using the the football example as kind of a uh, a low level example, but at the extreme, the man box is killing us. It is killing us through the suicide mm-hmm. rate and uh, it is killing us through, through homicide um, because one uh, at the extreme, the way that we enforce the man box is through uh, violence and, and murder. And so if you're stepping outside of that um, in any way, including being effeminate or, uh, or gay, or even if you're stepping, we're talking about uh, white, white cis hetero, uh, if you're maybe embodying a different uh, racial identity of masculinity, you know, the, the American 
man box wants to put you back back into that. And the way that we do that mm-hmm. is through shame and violence. Yeah, at the top of the episode, Ian gave one definition of toxic masculinity. There was one that I had wrote down by Dr. Terry Coopers, uh, which is the need to aggressively compete and dominate others. And that goes right with what you were saying of, let me be the gatekeeper of what masculinity should be. Oh, you don't fit that? Okay, let me take care of that for you. And I feel like that's what we see today. Absolutely. I talk a lot about... uh, um the two pillars of toxic masculinity that I talk about in session are the denial of vulnerability that we have been talking about. And number two is the delusion of dominance. And so this is kind of what I talk about with that ladder inside the box. And, uh, and so putting white cis hetero masculinity, elevating it above other, other masculine identities, including, uh, Ian, I think you are, very masculine. <laughs> Sorry. I'm kidding. Okay, maybe maybe I screwed that up. <laughs> no, let's keep it. Let's do it. <laughs> I think, honestly, I mean, between the two, we can get into tops versus bottoms <laughs> in a, a on future, tap. future episode on tap. But um, my, uh, my fiancé is way more masculine than I am. He has a military background, first responder. He has a background in construction. He's way more of a, um, I guess the, he, he fits the mold of a masculine heteronormative male than I do. Um, but yes, we, we can definitely talk about that. Um, but that my, goes back to our, like our metric for masculine though. Like, that's, that's what I was thinking. I think you are a, a yeah. Well, yeah. I'm I a six foot to... tall male. Yeah, you've been um, like curling uh, twenty pound dumbbells this whole podcast. Like no, that's impressive. I haven't. No, and my my very straight identifying sweater that I'm wearing. No, I think you're you're wearing an an <laughs> an amazing sweater, and and I'm thinking back to a, a thing that came out in GQ recently. I'm gonna go down a rabbit hole, and if y'all don't want to go, we don't. We can edit it out. But um, you're. And I was calling you masculine and not a uh, facetious way. It was just your masculine identity is is different from mine, uh, but equally valid. And you have this amazing uh, – h- how would you even describe – People ask me if it's a Versace sweater, and I say, no, it's Versace because I got it at Forever, <laughs> Forever 21. Actually, about a year ago, uh, Pharrell, the musician uh, – appeared on the cover of GQ and he was wearing uh, a very, um, it's hard to describe, a very flowing kind of robe. Was it Versace? Y'all can maybe Google it and help me out here with the... (laughs) The first thing that I typed in when I Googled Pharrell's name was Pharrell on Evolving Masculinity. Yep, there he is. Interesting. Uh, uh, so, so he's this. on this uh, on the cover of GQ October, I believe. He looks like whoa. Okay, talking about blurring the lines, um, and he's in this. It, admittedly, the opposite of what you would it think. Looks of, like something Corella Deville would wear. Yes, hundred <laughs> percent. And the yep. the the tagline uh, around him is the new masculinity. Okay. And I was in a, a men's development kind of online group at the time when this came out, and everyone lost their fucking minds. 
They all thought that this was an attack on masculinity, that we were destroying it. <laughs> and I... I twitch. Right. So I, I'm, my thing here is masculinity is about owning your I- identity and being confident. And if he wants to rock that, I couldn't pull that off. But if he wants to rock that, uh, that's awesome. You're rocking this badass sweater that's super masculine to me. I'm wearing this uh, Daytona dong sarong. Patrick, <laughs> you've got on your, uh, how would you describe this? A, uh, it's a festive, festive. festive holiday cardigan. Yes. So we're all, uh, we're the all Christmas trees. Okay. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about the man box, that masculine identities. Right. So the man box wants an identity. And uh, what I'm saying is that uh, there's a lot of room for identities. But that also shows just like how arbitrary our description of masculinity is. Or I can't tell you how many times where I thought I was dressed up wearing khakis and a button down shirt and a sports coat and been called a hipster because it's not expected of our generation <laughs> oh, to Lord. heaven forbid we put effort into our our appearance. Or Metro. Remember but that yet, one? <laughs> like you look into like the forties and the fifties or the nineteen twenties, like gangsters at the time wore zoot suits. They wore men in general uh, fancy they, coats and men in and general buttons. wouldn't leave the house without wearing a suit. It's a moving target and this is part of the, the man box. I'll just tell about. y'all all twenty twenty since uh, the world shut down, I have been wearing sweats and house shoes <laughs> that look like that look like actual shoes just to appear a little bit more socially acceptable. But it makes me think of like people that criticize like ice cube for acting in all of these like family friendly movies. And he, and people in interviews will be like, you're one of the founders of NWA. Like how could you be doing like road trip? And he was like, there's nothing more gangster than making money. Any opportunity that you have, (laughs) (laughs) it's like he is no less uh, legit than he was when he founded NWA. But yet, our metric changes just like so ridiculous. If you're more family oriented, you're less masculine. I actually, funny you mentioned that. Um, This is going to be a six hour episode. (laughs) I know. Fuck. If we're just now getting to ice cube. Yeah. We got like four hours of content ahead of us. No, I I will. (laughs) I will not reveal his identity because it was with a client, but a conversation erupted between one of my long-term clients and I, and he was basically talking about, moving to the burbs of Austin instead of living, you know, centrally, more central. But he has a family. And he said that um, if I moved to X town, um, I will be, you know, I'll be less cool. That's where all our exes live. The X town. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was a suburb of, of, of Austin. And y'all can probably think, you know, (laughs) San Antonio. My ex lives. No, it's a suburb of Austin. He said that, you know, like, you know, five years ago before I had, you know, before I had a family, I would have said, Oh, fuck that. I'm not going to be close to these bars and these, these concert venues and whatnot. And he's like, but now, you know, my priorities have changed because I have a family. So I'm okay living in, this suburb of Austin. So yeah, but that makes me think of our last part <laughs> of this episode, which is reeling it all in. So being three male therapist, we all treat men. Um, I think all three of us have specialties in treating men. 
Um, I think an overwhelming amount of my caseload, at least, I think I have about 22, 23 people next week and I think 17 people of them are men or, or teen men. Um, so I, I think honestly, just it's safe to say that our specialties are working with men. We all already know part of the mission of our podcast itself is to normalize therapy. And of course, one of the first episodes that we record is talking to men. Um, so anybody want to share any stories about working with men, working, working with men in kind of the mental health arena? Well, first, uh, I know this is coming out a little bit later, but hats off to Elliot Page for uh, yes coming out mm-hmm. as male and Elliot Page. And I, it's the internet's had an interesting reaction. I see a lot of supportive, a lot of uh, websites and articles being specifically uh, trying to clear up the new pronouns and um, fighting any like negative press about it. So that's pretty pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, I have a uh, a long term client, and I I uh, adore him to death. And um, uh, but he, you know, his upbringing would I think make all of ours uh, look. I don't compare suffering, but if we're comparing suffering, uh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't compare, but let's rate it on a one to ten. But this young man um, got a got a lot of really horrific messages around vulnerability and masculinity and uh, a lot of other stuff going on. But um, he would come in, and uh, I would see him on. Wednesday, and so Wednesday became known as Feelings Day. So he would come in, and and we would we would feel together, and uh, it it kind of became a, a joke between us that um, you know I would say like you you're allowed to you're allowed to feel on the other days of the week, you know, and and we we'd kind of joke about it, but but over time I really got to appreciate that. Um, the, the space that I was providing and that w- we were able to provide for him uh, really created one of the few places in his life that he felt um, safe enough to kind of process some of these feelings. So um, if uh, for, for all men listening, I hope you can find some, uh, uh, some somewhere that you can go where you have more than one feelings day a week. Oh, <laughs> Friday is feelings day for me. Yeah, same. Actually, that's when I see my therapist. I saw actually funny story. I just saw her right before recording this podcast and I was stuck in traffic on 35 sobbing my eyes out. Um, but was that from the traffic or the therapy? A little bit of both. Okay. I feel like there's lots of thoughts swimming around in my head on top of being stuck in dead stop traffic. Ugh, <laughs> not fun. Not a fun way to spend my Friday afternoon. Um, Patrick, what about you? Do you have any any stories about working with men and mental health? I'm sure you do. <laughs> Just notice knowing your history of the populations that you've worked with. Um, I was trying to think of a funny story, which I couldn't necessarily think of one, but I will end on like an enlightening note. Since I do work with teens, it is interesting to see um, 
teens are very open about their mental health. I feel like there's far less stigma with teens these days than with adults in terms of acknowledging feelings, getting help, coming to therapy. And the majority of the teens that I see are male and it was their request to come in. So that's been pretty cool to see that there's, there's less stigma around acknowledging that they need some assistance here and there. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of, um, a lot of people born after the year 1990 are very emotionally intelligent is what I've kind of seen. Yeah. Um, which I, I think you can kind of chalk that up to. I mean, as, as we've progressed, I, I think less and less men as this is my observation, less and less men are taught those very toxic, rigid <laughs> expectations. I think than I think like say men our age were taught like in the nineties. Um, but that's that's definitely a, an observation I've kind of seen. Thank you for listening. Again, I am Ian Hammonds. I'm Hayden Lindsay. And I'm Patrick Harris. And this was Therapy on Tap. To get in touch with any of us, whether you want to have conversations about therapy or whether you are in Texas and want to become one of our clients, please see the show notes where you can find the best ways to reach us. You can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are enjoying the show. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Peace. Love y'all.